Welcome to Audible DeFi, the podcast that brings the best written content in decentralized finance straight to your ears. I'm your host, Nancy Ellen. In this episode, I will be reading Public Blockchain Fee Cyclicality and Negative Feedback Loops by Nick Carter. Throughout the article, Carter shares with us repeating patterns that he has tracked in the price of both Ethereum and Bitcoin. Using Bitcoin as the first example, Carter highlights the recurring pattern that took place at the end of 2017. Blocks would fill up, fees would spike, transactions would start to drop, and then blocks would start to fill up again. Carter goes on to correlate the fees at any given time to transact in a network with the above cycle. Moving on to the current fee crisis happening in Ethereum, Carter explores the flip side of these recurring patterns by examining the influence that fees have on liquidity and DeFi leverage. He uses an easy-to-understand analogy of high house fees when playing poker at a casino, with how high fees within a network can negatively affect pricing by discouraging transactors with smaller transactions to participate. Carter wraps up the article with future prospect solutions for Ethereum that will undoubtedly affect fees and liquidity. I hope you enjoy the episode. Public Blockchain Fees, Cyclicality, and Negative Feedback Loops by Nick Carter Invented in 1788 by James Watt, the centrifugal governor is a small, clever device that made steam engines viable in an industrial context. Effectively, it takes rotational input from a steam engine and applies it to weighted balls. As they spin, the centrifugal force pushes them upward, moving a lever connected to a valve. As they spin faster, the valve closes. In this manner, the governor takes input from a steam engine and mechanically regulates the flow of steam and hence the speed of the engine. This innovation made steam engines suitable for industrial processes which required stability and predictable speeds, like mechanical looms. The key idea is that as the system gains in energy, a negative feedback loop develops which caps its growth. For steam engines, this is part of their design and is a very good thing. As we will see, a similar phenomenon exists in public blockchains, with more mixed results. The Curious Case of the Cyclical Fees As the dust cleared on the mania of 2017, I noticed that Bitcoin fees and transaction count appeared to be following a repeating pattern. Blocks would fill up, fees would spike, transactions would start to drop, and then blocks would start to fill up again. By my count, this cycle repeated itself six times in 2017. At this point, Carter provides a chart that is available at Coinmetrics with the mean fees of BTC and the BTC transaction count, having a clear correlation between March 2017 and March 2018. When more users started transacting BTC back in 2017, 
these spikes in transaction count were followed by an increase in mean fees, which makes a lot of intuitive sense given that block space is limited on Bitcoin. So if there's more demand for on-chain transactions, fees tend to increase shortly thereafter. Okay, back to the article. Note that I've smoothed both average fees and transaction count on a seven-day moving average. People recall Bitcoin's late 2017 fee crisis as a single event, but in fact there were at least four periods of fees rising dramatically, and six if you count smaller peaks. It's just that most people count fees in dollar terms rather than native unit terms, so they only really noticed the final prolonged fee spike when the USD value of Bitcoin was spiking too. At this point, Carter provides a table that gives the details about the six times this cyclicality was observed in Bitcoin where an increase in transaction count resulted in an increase in mean transaction fees. Back to the article. On average, fees would peak about two weeks after transactions did. The entire cycle took two months to complete, although it accelerated throughout the year. As blocks became progressively fuller, a marginal new burst of transactions pushed fees into intolerable ranges for transactors. Of course, fees are just the symptom. The underlying constraint is block space you can visualize the hard stop development by examining the relationship between block fullness and average fees. At this point, Carter provides a chart that shows both mean fees in BTC terms and mean block size in bytes between January 2017 and March 2018. And the data confirms that as Bitcoin blocks were consistently getting full in late 2017, that led to a drastic increase in BTC fees as Bitcoin was inching closer to $20,000. Back to the article. Using this approach, you can see that as blocks filled up and stayed full, fees crept upward. As fees reached a peak, users chose to transact less and blocks emptied out, giving rise to the ragged patterns in block size. But as fees came down, block space looked more attractive to users and they flocked back to the protocol, causing blocks to fill up again. In the final grand fee spike around January 2018, blocks stayed full to the brim for months, and fees reached eye-watering levels in both BTC and USD terms. Keep in mind that SegWit was officially activated on July 23, 2017. Since it represented an effective block size increase, allowing blocks to carry up to the equivalent of 4 megabytes of data, you can see block bursts through the one megabyte limit in the latter half of the year. However, because SegWit was not fully embraced by transactors right away, average block size grew only slowly. Here's a diagram of the process. I call it an oscillation 
because it causes both fees and the utilization of blockchain resources to oscillate, like a sine wave. But you could also describe it as a negative feedback loop, as fees inhibit transactions when they hit certain thresholds. At this point, Carter provides a diagram that better showcases the cyclical relationship between all these factors that affected Bitcoin in 2017. This diagram is a cycle, but let's say it starts with transaction count increasing. Since there are more users transacting, blockchain fees go higher, which essentially prices out users that don't want to pay too much in fees. So overall, this leads to less users transacting due to fees being too high. This in turn leads to a decrease in the total transaction count. And with less transactions in the network, there is a decline in on-chain fees. But when fees decrease, the users that were previously priced out can go back to using the blockchain, which then increases demand for block space, ultimately restarting this cycle. Back to the article. This was a little more than a curiosity. I pointed it out at the time, but the cycle didn't really matter altogether too much. You couldn't bet on where you thought transaction count would be in a week after all. The lesson I took from this was straightforward. At a certain point, users grow frustrated with fees and deprioritize on-chain transactions especially if the fees are large relative to their transaction size. SegWit helped a fair amount, as did the institution of batching. Seen in a certain way, fees are self-correcting as they encourage large consumers of block space to be more parsimonious with their consumption of chain resources. But all this did was reinforce my idea that scaling Bitcoin will require a number of deferred transaction systems that settle to BTC under an array of trust models. The other takeaway for me was that users evidenced a clear transactional life cycle. And after a period of acute fee pressure required several weeks to return to their prior level of consumption. Ethereum's 2020 Fee Crisis This year, when Ethereum's fees started to creep up and then exceed those on Bitcoin, I wondered to myself whether Ethereum would see a reprise of Bitcoin's fee TX count dynamics. I puzzled over whether it would have the same effect or be more disruptive to Ethereum, since so much liquidity is on-chain as opposed to primarily off-chain at exchanges. I figured we'd see the same thing, with a less dramatic oscillation, since the supply of Ethereum block space is somewhat dynamic and can increase in response to surging usage. As it turns out, fees would end up being more disruptive than I had expected. At this point, Carter provides a chart also available at CoinMetrics, that shows both the price median ETH fees and transaction count with three distinct upticks in 2020, which coincided with the launch of the Curve DAO token, SushiSwap, and the Uniswap token. And the same effect can be observed here where the increase in fees that was driven by these tokens ultimately led to a decrease in the number of transactions being processed in the Ethereum network. Back to the article. 
Like Bitcoin in 2017, Ethereum this year saw a utilization spike as transactions grew, which gradually drove up fees. Compound's public token launch in mid-June intensified the blockchain utilization and hence fee pressure, and a host of other launches saw fees reach a crescendo starting in mid-August. Several notable launches, namely the dual launches of SushiSwap and Uniswap's token, spiked fees to eye-watering levels. On September 2nd, the average Ethereum transaction cost over $14. All told, $16.7 was paid in ETH fees that day, well surpassing minor revenue from new issuance which totaled $5.98 million. And as those fees rose, some users chose to defer transactions, and transaction counts started to drop. As we entered a new high-fee epic in mid-August, Ethereum transactions per day started to steadily drop. Fees peaked much later on September 2nd, but have also begun to come down over the last month. Just two days later, on September 4th, I predicted on the On the Brink podcast that Ethereum's high fees would not only affect chain utilization, but also liquidity on decentralized exchanges. I'll post a brief transcript below. The relevant part begins at 36 minutes, 30 seconds. Nick. We saw this VTX count oscillation happen in Bitcoin in 2017. I would predict that we would see the same thing with Ethereum. So effectively, fees rise as block space utilization rises. And at a certain critical threshold, users kind of get fed up and they stop transacting for a while. It's not economical for them to transact and so transaction count and fees drop, and then fees get cheaper so people start transacting again, and the cycle repeats. And I think if you look at the sell-off, it's probably partially due to that because some of these more retail investors that were using these on-chain exchanges, they're getting priced out of those trades. And if there's no retail investors, that's a lot of the uninformed flow that the smart traders trade against. And so I think there's a hit to liquidity generally when that happens. Matt, no retail, no party. And while ETH price dynamics are hard to pin down, and I'm not claiming they are solely attributable to this phenomenon, ETH USD peaked on September one and declined from there while fees stayed elevated through the rest of the month. So what happened exactly? A couple things. First, Ethereum entered into what I believe will be its first major fee chain usage oscillation, with fees peaking about three weeks after transaction count and both declining subsequently. Perhaps more interestingly, the average size of Ethereum transaction and various stablecoin transactions shot up alongside the rising fees. This stands to reason. 
Users have a view of how much they're willing to pay in fees as a percentage of their transaction. And as fees rise, they stop making small transactions and larger transactions start to dominate. The correlation is startlingly tight and suggests to me that users are very sensitive to fees. At this point, Carter provides a chart available at Coinmetrics showing the median fees ETH terms and the median transaction size ETH terms, having a clear correlation between April 2020 and September 2020. Back to the article. It's not just basic Ether transactions which exhibit this fee sensitivity either. Tokens like Tether also evidence rising transaction sizes as ETH fees increase. At this point, Carter provides a chart available at Coinmetrics also showing a high degree of correlation between median fees ETH terms and the median transaction size in USD between February 2020 and September 2020. Turns out this cyclicality also affects stablecoins like USD Tether. Back to the article. This suggests that transactors have a threshold of fees as a percentage of transaction value that they're willing to pay. And as fees rise, they become unwilling to make smaller transactions, unless they really have to. The above could be explained by some third explanatory variable like the growth of liquidity mining, which was both congesting the chain and causing larger transactors to enter. I found more clarity when I investigated the composition of Ether transactions. I intuitively felt that smaller transactors were being priced out by fees, but it wasn't clear until I put together this chart. At this point, Carter shares a chart that shows Ethereum transaction composition between June 1st, 2020 and September 21st, 2020. Back to the article. Initially, this chart may not look too notable. It shows a cooling off of transaction count as fees rise, as we saw above. But more interesting is the changing dynamic among ETH and USDT transfers, which I've split up at the $500 threshold. You can see transactions accounting for more than $500 worth of ETH gaining steadily share relative to smaller transactions as fees rise. Let's eliminate contract calls and focus on the two categories of ETH transfers found above. At this point, Carter provides a chart that shows the share of ETH transfers under $500 versus median ETH fees between June 1st, 2020 and September 21st, 2020. As fees from the previously mentioned token sales increase transaction fees, you can see in this chart how it led to a decrease in transfers under $500. Back to the article. This is the smoking gun. For non-contract call transactions, ETH transfers under $500 were idling at about 85% in June. But when fees spiked, they collapsed to as little as 40% of ETH transfers. 
Finally, some hard evidence for my intuition. Fees price out smaller users. Predictably, the same phenomenon is evident in the usage patterns of the biggest ERC-20 token, Tether. You can clearly see the smaller USDT transactions start to drop off as median fees start to climb in mid-August. Larger Tether transactions hold firm, but still evidence a declining trend overall as transactions cooled off during the high-fee epoch. At this point, Carter provides a chart entitled Tether Transaction Count by Size versus ETH Median Fees that compares Tether transactions under $500 Tether transactions above $500, and ETH median fees between June 1, 2020 and September 21, 2020. Back to the article. Do high fees affect liquidity? So, we've established that there is a clear negative feedback loop between fees and utilization of blockchain resources, both in Bitcoin and in Ethereum. In Bitcoin, we know that this cycle historically takes two months to complete. We haven't yet seen what it will look like in Ethereum. Moreover, it's clear that transactors have a threshold in mind for the highest tolerable fees relative to the size of the transactions they are making, and that smaller transactors defer their transactions during periods of high fees. This causes average transaction sizes for both ETH and other tokens to creep up during high fee epochs. But is there more to the story, or is this just another recast of Bitcoin 2017? I'd venture that there is indeed another wrinkle here. Remember that in 2017, Bitcoin trading took place at centralized exchanges, with the blockchain being used for inter-exchange settlement and for user deposits and withdrawals. Actual markets were made off-chain. A user could fund an exchange account with fiat and hold and then sell Bitcoin, all without actually touching the blockchain. So when the fee crisis appeared, it absolutely put a break on the Bitcoin economy but plenty of users were able to make trades on exchanges if they already had funds on the platform or wanted to wire in USD. By contrast, Ethereum trading in 2020, together with its litany of associated tokens, is very much an on-chain phenomenon. Now centralized exchanges are still very important to price formation. But certain DEXs, like Uniswap, have at times eclipsed even the largest centralized exchanges. Because automated market maker DEXs do not require KYC, custodying coins with a third party, or a lengthy onboard process, they are far more convenient for end users. The no-order book AMM model is also extremely simple to use. And certain assets and types of exposure, like smaller DeFi tokens or mining with liquidity, are only possible on-chain. 
As a consequence, a vibrant industry of on-chain liquidity has emerged with ferocity. As virtually everything traded on these DEXs is Ether or a token on Ethereum, everything is exposed to fees. Unlike centralized exchanges, every trade you make at a DEX has to settle on-chain. On-chain fees are therefore an ever-present consideration. So contrasting with the vanilla fee-TX count oscillation model we saw from Bitcoin in 2017, here's a modified version to account for the new dynamics we saw from Ethereum in 2020. At this point, Carter provides a diagram showcasing how this cyclical relationship affects on-chain activity. This diagram is similar to the diagram shown earlier, which depicted how this cyclicality affected Bitcoin. He now applies it to Ethereum. A key difference with Ethereum is that an increase in fees leads to smaller retail transactors getting priced out which ultimately reduces uninformed flow, which then leads to a decrease in on-chain liquidity. Back to the article. So where does this second loop derive from? Why single out DEX-heavy chains for special treatment? First, it's important to understand that, as Maya Zahavi puts it, high fees are a regressive tax on users, Regressive because fees are not proportional to your wealth, but instead apply largely in the same way whether you're moving $100 worth of ETH or $10,000. Fees are a function of the computational heaviness of your transaction rather than the dollar value of transactions. This is similar to the manner in which sales taxes are regressive. Because groceries account for a larger share of the income of working class people than they do wealthy people. Thus, a fixed 5% sales tax is effectively a much larger portion of income for a less well-off family. Let's consider an analogy. Imagine a private game of poker with a rake which is fixed in dollar terms, rather than being a percentage of the value of the pot. The rake is the fee that the operator takes for running the game. Players have the choice to play a given hand and pay the fixed fee or sit out, in which case they don't have to pay. There's a variety of players at the table, a couple professionals, some semi-pros, and some gamblers who are enthusiastic but aren't particularly good at poker. The house can set the value of the rake wherever it likes. To have a winning night, not only do you need to win against your opponents, but you need to be profitable net of the rake taken by the house. It's not enough just to win. You have to win after absorbing transaction costs. If the rake is low, everyone participates happily. But when the table operator gets greedy and increases the rake, the players with smaller stacks start to sit out more and more hands. If they have to fork over one-tenth of their stack just to play a hand, they're going to opt out, unless they have pocket aces. The general trend is that as the rake rises in absolute terms, players are gradually priced out of the game. 
starting with the players with the smallest bankrolls. When the smaller, less sophisticated players start to drop out, the game gets substantially less profitable for everyone else. After all, the semi-pros depend on the existence of unsophisticated opponents to make a living. As every poker player knows, you probably don't want to sit at a table on a Tuesday morning with the grinders and semi-pros. You want to hit the felt on a Friday night when the loose amateur gamblers roll through, lose their stack, and stumble off to the bar. To return the analogy to Ethereum, the fees are the rake and they price out the retail individuals who, until recently, were having a rollicking time on Uniswap and other DEXs. But as fees climb to $14 on average and much higher for DeFi transactions like swapping ETH to DAI on Uniswap, it simply became uneconomical for individuals with smaller bankrolls to participate in trading or liquidity mining. An entire portion of the market was forced to sit on their hands. And since retail investors are the uninformed flow that professionals trade against and profit from, if retail isn't sitting at the table, the game is not as worthwhile. All of this manifests in a degradation of liquidity and worse trading opportunities overall. All of that said, this theory is hard to confirm empirically. A detailed analysis of wallets active in DeFi at various thresholds and their reactions to fees, or a comparison of spreads versus ETH fees, would be helpful in confirming these hypotheses. But there are few data points which are indicative. First, here's aggregate DEX volume courtesy of Frederick Haga's Dune Analytics dashboard compared to median Ethereum fees. At this time, Carter provides two similar charts, one from Dune Analytics that shows correlation in price between different ERC-20 tokens between July 5th, 2020 and September 27th, 2020. The next chart is provided by Coinmetrics, which spans the same time frame and shows the average price of ERC-20 tokens at this time. Back to the article. You can see that volume and fees have co-moved in the past few months. This is consistent with fees putting a break on usage, especially at the retail tiers. The problem is that causality is hard to infer. It could easily be the case that high DEX volume was the cause of elevated fees and vice versa, rather than high fees being the catalyst for declining volumes. Perhaps more interestingly, this chart shows the daily new addresses taking part in various DeFi protocols, the first derivative of the Dune dashboard built by Richard Chen, versus median ETH fees. At this point, Carter provides a chart entitled New DeFi Users vs. Median ETH Fees. This chart spans from June 1st, 2020 and September 14th, 2020, and shows a clear correlation between the rise of new DeFi users and median ETH fees. Back to the article. With the exceptions of two big spikes around SushiSwap and the UniToken launch, daily new entrants to DeFi seem to be cooling off after mid-August when ETH fees reached a new plateau. 
The conclusions being drawn here are more speculative. While it's clear that smaller users defer transactions when fees are higher, the direct effect on on-chain liquidity is hard to measure. Future Prospects for Ethereum Fees We haven't seen the full chain resources cycle play out yet on Ethereum, so it's hard to gauge the cycle length. But in the spirit of making concrete predictions, I will forecast the following. I expect that we will see ongoing, positively correlated oscillations on Ethereum between fees, transactions, and crucially, the liquidity and volumes of on-chain exchanges. I imagine it will look something like this. At this point, Carter shares a diagram of what he predicts the correlation between DEX volume and average fees will look like in the future. There seems to be a correlation between the two, with DEX volumes rising first, which subsequently leads to an increase in average fees. Back to the article. If you believe that DEX volumes and the on-chain liquidity environment more generally are accretive to the price of Ether, it doesn't take much imagination to make educated guesses about the potential price impact of this phenomenon. To the extent that the Ether's value is exposed to the reservation demand for the asset as the liability-free collateral at the base of the DeFi system, fees that put a break on the usage will most likely make the TVL in the system unwind and put pressure on the price of ETH. That said, there are a few counter-cyclical features that might attenuate the oscillation and spare Ethereum from the tyranny of volatile fees. Dynamic block space supply. Unlike Bitcoin, which has only formally increased the block size cap once in its existence, Ethereum is more amenable to producing more block space if necessary, although the rate of increase is constrained. Elastic block space could in theory be employed to stabilize fees. But this comes at the cost of increased validation requirements, which are already fairly high for Ethereum. As Ethereum utilization has increased, miners have rewarded transactors with ever more computational capacity. At this point, Carter provides a chart from CoinMetrics that shows the relationship between ETH block gas limit and ETH transaction gas used between 2016 and 2020. Back to the article. However, because raising the gas limit increases the uncle rate, makes the network potentially more vulnerable to DOS attacks, and makes operating a full node more costly, the Ethereum community is divided on the prospect of further gas increases. While Ethereans are willing to tolerate more aggressive trade-offs than Bitcoiners as far as the cost of node operation is concerned, The two camps generally agree that merely increasing the supply of block space is not a scaling panacea. So while block space has a certain supply elasticity which enables it to respond to increased demand, there is little political willingness to pursue a wholly accommodative block space policy. ETH 2.0 slash sharding When I first wrote about the prospects for Ethereum fees, Vitalik's response to my article, 
in which I claimed that Ethereum would likely be saddled with high fees for an extended period, and this would affect the viability of non-financial applications, Vitalik clarified his stance on fees. Effectively, he pointed out that he still believes in Ethereum's vision for a low-cost blockchain in which a variety of applications, both financial and non-financial, are possible. His proposed solutions are roll-ups in the near term and ETH 2.0s slash sharding in the long term. Vitalik has said that he expects ETH 2.0 to produce 100 times more capacity, although he expects that fees might eventually rise to an equivalent level thanks to induced demand. I am inclined to agree. If you produce a commodity more efficiently, the world will find more uses for that now cheaper commodity. Thus, it wouldn't be all that surprising to see average fees reach a high plateau, even taking into account the creation of more block space. Regardless, ETH2 still appears fairly remote, so it's difficult to reason about. At the very least, it won't be moving the needle fee-wise in the near term. Rollups. The current orthodoxy in Ethereum holds that rollups are the main path to alleviating Ethereum's current fee woes. Rollups come in two major types, ZK and Optimistic, but they both generally involve bundling many payments together and vastly increasing the economic density of transactions. In theory, preserving the assurances of base layer transactions while massively increasing TPS. In short, transactors rely on relayers who assemble large batches of transactions and broadcast digests of these transactions. A ZK rollup involves broadcasting significantly truncated transaction stubs, alongside a proof that the bundle of transactions is a valid change to the ledger. The optimistic variant involves semi-trust operators who assemble transactions, with transactors who largely assume that the operators are not acting maliciously. Deterrence is, in theory, achieved through a combination of fraud proofs and economic penalties for misbehavior. Currently, ZK rollups are most limited to simple transfers, whereas certain breeds of optimistic rollups, OR, promise to open up the full scope of transactions currently possible in vanilla Ethereum. For a comprehensive breakdown of the state of OR, see this comprehensive report courtesy of Daniel Goldman. Rollups effectively take transactional data off-chain and put validity proofs on-chain. Bitcoiners embraced a similar data parsimony vision years ago and pursued Lightning, which could reduce hundreds of thousands of payments to a handful of on-chain transactions and sidechains, as well as advocating for pro-efficiency measures like batching and segwit usage. Thanks to the popularity of rollups and apparent pace of progress, Vitalik is championing them as the best near-term approach to scaling Ethereum. While ETH 2.0 may yet come into play, the rollup vision of Ethereum is much closer at hand. There's a couple reasons why rollups may not be a panacea for Ethereum fees. Firstly, it will be a challenge to coax all consumers of block space to be responsible stewards of the system. 
especially if they are service providers and can pass fees on to end users rather than internalizing them. We learned this lesson with Bitcoin. If intermediaries can pass fees through to end users, they have a limited incentive to invest in a more sustainable infrastructure. Additionally, because Ethereum has repeatedly increased the gas limit to effectively bail out block space consumers at the expense of validators, heavy users may spend their resources lobbying for more gas limit increases rather than spending engineering hours on rollupizing their transactions. Along these same lines, the specter of superabundant block space on the horizon with ETH 2.0 might impair the enthusiasm for rollups among heavy transactors. Perversely, ETH 2.0's main contribution today may very well be to discourage heavy users from rendering their usage more efficient. Second, The global user base of a blockchain like Ethereum is not strictly something that developers and advocates can actually appeal to directly. Ethereum is open for anyone to participate in without exclusion, which is part of the reason for its popularity with Ponzi's and other marginal schemes. Presumably, the orchestrators of these schemes, which are routinely some of the heaviest consumers of block space, are not necessarily planning for the long term or trying to optimize their on-chain footprint, but rather more focused on making a quick buck. It sure would be interesting to see Forsage pushing the envelope tech-wise by rollupizing a pyramid scheme, though. On the technical side, rollups, especially the optimistic variant, are not identical to base layer transactions in terms of their settlement qualities. Vanilla Ethereum transactions are final almost immediately and do not carry chargeback or settlement risks. This property permits atomosity, which means that chain transactions either all happen or none do. This grants users the ability to safely interlink multiple systems without risking a cascading failure because one payment in the chain failed to clear. This is a highly desirable property, which is a function of its status as a digital bearer asset. Atomosity flows into composability, the off-trouted feature of Ethereum, whereby smart contracts can safely reference each other, allowing for the build-out of ever more complex systems without having to evaluate each model. Introducing more complex systems, like rollups, throws these assumptions of atomosity and composability into doubt. Due to the fraud-proof challenge trust model in some optimistic rollups, finality periods are extended in the unhappy case. Matter Labs estimates that the time to finality for OR will be on the order of one to two weeks. Note this estimate was made in November 2019, so the state of the art may have changed since then. One proposed solution, Control-F, withdrawal period, involves intermediaries which provide users withdrawing from the rollup discounted access to their temporarily frozen coins for the duration of the challenge period. As far as I can tell, this effectively creates a tiered system with lengthier finality from the free version of a rollup exit and shorter finality in the paid accelerated version. To put it somewhat uncharitably, Optimistic rollups introduce the potential of deferred settlement, 
There is nothing wrong with this. Deferred settlement is at the core of all efficient modern payment systems. But it is a different settlement model from base layer Ethereum transactions, which are cash-like. If you are used to transacting solely with bank wires, moving to ACH and credit payments will be more efficient. But it also means that you have to stomach impaired guarantees around settlement. This is why chargebacks are possible with credit card payments. They don't actually settle right away. Great for the consumer, bad if you're a merchant and you had earmarked those funds to pay bills coming due. Aside from questions of finality, impaired composability is another issue which might inhibit an immediate transition to OR. I am not an expert on rollups by any means, but I have seen composability challenges mentioned as some of the biggest drawbacks off OR. For these reasons, I don't believe it's inevitable that all major smart contracts on Ethereum will switch to a rollup system. To me, there seems to be a critical difference between a fast-settling base layer Ether or token transfer and a rollupized version of the same, especially when it comes to settlement. And if either composability or atomosity is impaired, the systems you can build look very different from those present on Ethereum as it works today. There is definitely something unique about DeFi as constituted from fast-settling Ether and token transfers today. And I believe that this will become clear as some large block space consumers start to make that switch to roll-up systems. As a consequence, I don't expect that roll-ups will meaningfully abate fees in the near term, even if they get partial uptake. Conclusion the difference between a centrifugal governor and on-chain fees is that the regulating effect on fees is more of a side effect of a properly functioning system rather than a key design consideration. In public blockchains, fees exist to ensure non-frivolous consumption of network resources and to provide validators with revenue. They're not strictly intended to put a check on the usage of the system. In practice, however, they do, and this break tends to be a sharp rather than a gradual one. As a consequence, we see an oscillation in resource usage, transactions, and even liquidity of on-chain products, rather than a gentle deceleration. These dynamics are well established in Bitcoin and only just starting to emerge in Ethereum. But due to the predominance of on-chain exchange in Ethereum, they are arguably more disruptive to the network as it works today. As Kyle Samani puts it, bounded throughput, instrumentalized by fee pressure, may be DeFi's invisible asymptote. The Ethereum community should consider the effects of repeating periods of high and volatile fees on the network with the understanding that some applications might be permanently priced out of viability. Lastly, rollups, while compelling scaling technologies, may not be a panacea from a fee perspective due to their effects on settlement assurances. Thanks to Ryan Gentry, Lucas Nuzzi, and Antoine Le Calve for their assistance and feedback. This wraps up our episode feel free to reach out with suggestions for future articles. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of Audible DeFi.